Today on the podcast, I'm talking with Jessica Greider. She's a 35-year-old high school librarian, and prior to becoming a librarian, she taught English for 12 years. Born and raised in Kansas City, Jessica is passionate about literacy and gardening. Her hobbies include fashion, bullet journaling, and writing smut, which I can't wait to hear about. (laughs) Jessica and I met over a year ago uh, through our mutual friend, Tammy. I took Jessica's maternity pictures when she was pregnant with her twin boys. So Jessica, welcome to the podcast. Um, how are you doing Thanks this morning? I'm doing really well. Excited to chat about motherhood and other awesome. things. Yeah. Is there anything that you wanted to add before we get started? Uh, well, in addition to my twins who just turned one a month ago, I also have a five and a half year old, all boys and three sons. Woo. Yeah. <laughs> Bowing down to you. I don't, yeah, that's a lot. I think Tammy originally connected us obviously for photography, but also because, um, I have twins also they're almost three, which is so hard to believe Alder and Winslow boy, girl twins. And so at the time they were two and I remember Jessica, when like following your social media, when you were pregnant, I just remember being so amazed at your pregnancy and like the progression of it. And then the fact that you went full term with twins and delivered them naturally. Oh, I had a C-section. Oh, you had a C-section. I did okay. have a C-section. But still yeah. going full term. <laughs> I was like, so, damn, that doesn't happen very often. Very large and very heavy <laughs> and uncomfortable. <laughs> and I had a doctor's appointment basically every third or fourth day just to make sure the twins were still okay. Oh and every time I walked into the doctor's office, you know, everyone was like, wow, you're still pregnant. <laughs> Yes, I was still pregnant. So yeah, we went in for my, I had a scheduled C-section because my twin A was breech and my twin B was transverse. So I had a C-section. What's transverse? Transverse is when they're lying kind of sideways. So more like perpendicular to the body. Gotcha. Instead of like up and down. Wow. Okay. So they were just doing their own thing in there. Yes. (laughs) I also had a C-section, but both of my twins were head down. So I went, my water broke at 34 weeks and four days and they were born the next day. But I went into the hospital thinking that I was going to give birth to them naturally because they were both in position. My, my water broke, uh, they were ready to go. I was dilated and then pushed for what felt like forever. I think, honestly, I think it was like two hours, but I was on a lot of drugs at the time that they had pumped into me prior to C-section. So that that could be off and could see my son's head, but could not get him out. And he was the larger twin. So I feel like if my daughter had been born first or if she had been in the, you know, position to be the first one to come out, then I maybe would have been able to give birth to them vaginally, but couldn't get him out. So ended up doing, um, I guess, emergency C-section. Oh my goodness. So yeah, that's wild. I know my doctor was hoping for a vaginal delivery because my, my first, I had a really uncomplicated vaginal delivery with him Mm. and, and she delivered him also. And I think there's kind of a novelty to it to be able to say that you like delivered your patient's twins vaginally. And so Uh. she was hopeful, but (laughs) it didn't work out that way. (laughs) I remember distinctly feeling for like, I don't know, a few, definitely a few weeks, maybe into a few months after having them via C-section that I couldn't say 
that they, that I had given birth. It was this weird thing. And I don't know, like biologically, if there's some like signals that get, you know, that don't happen when you give birth via C-section versus vaginally. But I just, every time I started talking about like my birth, their birth, I had a hard time saying I gave birth because I feel like I felt like I didn't. And that took a while to go away. Did you have any feelings like that or any like interesting Um, thoughts after? I think because I went into it knowing I was going to have a C-section, I think I probably had a different experience than that. I definitely feel like I went through enough to be able to say I gave birth to my twins. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Uh, but I do understand what you're saying. It's very, very different experience because with my first, like I, um, I labored, I went into labor on my own um, and labored um, naturally. And then um, I did have an epidural, but it wore off. So I could feel when it was time (laughs) to push, um, which I think was really helpful for me because I only pushed for about 15 or 20 minutes and he was there. And it was kind of like, I remember the first thing I said was, oh, I did it like that. It was over. (laughs) It was really happy. over. And with my C-section with my twins, I mean, it was just, everything felt so low-key and textbook and there weren't really complications and I just it was still a moment of like oh I did it yeah even though I didn't I felt like I just kind of laid there (laughs) right yeah I think logically like it was just always this battle in my head like logically I obviously knew that I had done the work to like give birth to them but I don't know it was like there was some disconnect and I just felt like like I cheated or something which is so ridiculous because I didn't like you can't it feels like such a common thing though I feel like I hear that from a lot of moms and I I will say I think that because I have a comparison it's a little bit different because my c-section recovery was so difficult compared Mm -hmm. to the vaginal recovery um just as far as being able to move my body and the pain I was in um it just it was just hard and I was older you know it was almost five years later um and it just it was just a harder recovery yeah. So I felt like my body had been through so much more. That's interesting. It, it's, it's so like case by case. Cause with my, my recovery was actually really easy from a physical standpoint, What had me, which I think is because of the fact that it was not a planned C-section. It took me like two weeks for my body to process all the drugs that they pumped into me right before the C-section. Like I felt some intense brain fog for like two weeks, which was really strange. Like I felt like I brain fog, but then also like, I felt like I was thinking more slowly. Like it was hard to like formulate a thought and like get it out of my mouth. Did you feel any of that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you just put into words exactly what it felt like for me. Yeah. Like I remember the doctors, cause we did about two weeks in the NICU. So the doctors would come in to chat with us and I remember having a hard time, like forming thoughts and then forming words and just being like, I swear I'm not stupid. Like <laughs> something is just wrong right now. Like something's going on. It was very strange. And I was not prepared for that at all. Yeah. I, I felt the same. Now I did not have a NICU stay, which um, I think is kind of uncommon amazing. for twins. Yeah. A lot of twins are in the NICU and we, the NICU nurses were in the, in the operating room during the C-section. So there were four because there were two for each baby and they, you know, said both of them were good to go back. And so I was like holding two babies and being wheeled back to the room. Oh my gosh. Um, and that was, it. I mean, we went home two days later, like there was no, yeah. So I, I had kind of braced myself for, okay, I might have to 
have my babies in the NICU for a while, just because it's very common. Um, And then that didn't happen at all. Which is amazing. But at the same time, you're thrust right into then full (laughs) mothering twins as we were recovering from a C-section. Whereas my husband and I felt like, you know, we didn't, it was sad in a way to have them in the NICU and like seeing like tubes in their faces and whatever. But at the same time, we're like, this is almost like a treat, like, like having people to take care of them overnight. Like I got to recover basically for Mm -hmm. two weeks for the most part. Like I got to sleep in a hotel at least for the first week, I think after. And so didn't have to do like, you know, I didn't have to jump right into the full on experience of mothering twins while recovering after C-section. So I imagine that it was sort of like awesome that they're not in the NICU, but at the same time, like you're thrown into the deep end. It was a lot. I will say there are just pieces of those couple days in the hospital that I don't remember or will just kind of randomly come back to me and I'll ask my husband, like, is this something that happened? Am I remembering this correctly? (laughs) Just because, yeah, I mean, it was a whirlwind and I was breastfeeding. So I was really, I mean, it felt like there was just a baby on my breast around the clock because I was nursing them uh, one at a time those first Mm -hmm. couple of days. And so that was, it was just really, really exhausting. I just remember feeling kind of delirious from the lack of sleep. And, you know, everyone comes in, you know, every hour, every 90 minutes to check on you. Like, Hey, we need to take your blood pressure. We need to do a blood draw. We need to massage your belly. Like that, all of that was also happening at the same time. So yeah, you're right. I mean, we were thrust into it. (laughs) Yeah. And you mentioned you have an older son who's five and a half. What was, from what you remember, because I know it's foggy during those first few days and weeks, but, and people ask me this all the time. They're like, I can't imagine having two newborns at the same time. Like, I don't know how you did it. And for me, it's like, well, that's all we've known because the, the, our twins are our first and only kids, but you had a singleton before twins. And so he was four and a half at the time. Four and a half. Four and a half. So like, how was it different than having a singleton newborn and then also layering in, you know, you're not just having newborn twins, but you also have a four and a half year old who wants your attention. I like that. I had the experience of having a single baby first, because I feel like we were able to make a plan of action as far as like how we're going to take care of our two babies, but also ourselves. Because with my first, I felt like you know, I'd read all the books and read the blogs and watched the YouTube videos and felt prepared. But still, when once it happens, you're like, oh, this is a lot. And I just remember being really tired. We didn't really have any like great routine with him. And so once we finally figured out a good routine, and so with the twins, we kind of thought, okay, this is what worked with our singleton. So let's do this with our twins. And I feel like that really kind of got us through those first several weeks of all of the like sleepless nights and and long days. Mm. So I feel like that was, that was helpful. Um, The other thing I will say is um, our older kiddo is kind of an anomaly. He just, he's a really, really good kid. He's an easy kid, if that makes Mm. sense. Like he just... I'm not, I'm not sure how to just Has he always it. been that way? Like even before yeah, he became he a big brother? Like even, even as a baby, he just. Slept. I, yeah. Like, I don't know. <laughs> so we, <laughs> That's a big we thing. sleep trained at my house. So he, so we sleep trained him um, and he did well with that. And then he just, he's really smart and intuitive and 
I don't, he's kind of a pleaser. He like always wants us Mm -hmm. to be happy with him. So I think that's, that's a big part of his personality. And I think it makes it like, he's just really spoiled us as parents really. So when, um, you know, we told him he was going to be a big brother and he was really excited about it and asked lots of questions. And then they got here and you worry about like, what does the jealousy look like? And is he going to act out? And, and he didn't, he kind of just, fell in love with him like those are his babies and um I will say he watched a lot of tv that last summer (laughs) just because you know there was like nothing else I could do with him and he did fine he did fine with that the one big thing that changed for him is he started sleeping on the floor next to his bed and so like next to you guys no he's in his room on the floor in front of a fan (laughs) (laughs) Um, and that's, that's really the biggest change, um, since the babies, since we had the twins, he, um, he sleeps on the floor and that's it. Um, he had some trouble in the beginning with them. Like if both of them were crying at the same time, he would get really upset and like go in the other room, but that's really it. And like, you know, in the beginning, newborns can't really do anything. So he would kind of get frustrated with like, when are their eyes going to open? When can they play with me? (laughs) Yeah. Like, when are they going to sit up and he's really good about um, just sort of taking explanations and like internalizing that. So I would tell him, you know, in about three or four months, they'll be able to do this. Um, Or like when they started rolling over, he was really excited about that. So we got really lucky with just having Mm -hmm. like a really easy older kiddo because he just, he loves them and they love him and they get so excited to see him every morning. And so sweet. um, He just, yeah, he's fantastic. And he's good with us too. Like when I say like, Hey, can you bring me a diaper or a wipe or whatever? He's like always on it. Like he just wants to be so helpful. It worked out as far as just having my singleton first. And um, I also like their age gap. I think just him being like now they're one and he's five and a half and um, it's just kind of a an interesting dynamic because he's so much older than they are, but he just, he loves playing with them and he's just so excited all the time. So I currently have baby fever. <laughs> My husband does not, which I'm working on, but you know, there are some real considerations when moving from two kids to three kids, or in your case, one kid to three kids, uh, you know, such as like your vehicles and space in your house and of course like financial and everything so was that I assume which I should ask first were you guys expecting just one yes yeah okay (laughs) so then when you found out there were two and there were going to be three kids like were there some big changes that you guys had to make just like you know like with logistics and your vehicles and things like that when you found out there were you were going to have three Absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. So um, I will say I was in your situation where I had baby fever and my husband was not on board (laughs) and it took us a while to finally decide that we were going to have another baby. And then there were two. (laughs) So I actually found out really early I was having twins because I'd had two miscarriages in a row. And Mm -hmm. so my OB's office, they had me come in, like as soon as I got a positive pregnancy test, they wanted to do blood work to see if I needed progesterone um, in hopes of preventing a third miscarriage. And so I went in, I did the blood work and then sort of routinely, like they do it two days later to make sure it's increasing. 
And so at this point, it was very early. I was three weeks and three days pregnant when I got my first blood draw. And then I went in again, I think I was three weeks and six days. So got my results back two days later. She said, come in for an ultrasound. And I guess I should have maybe thought something was up then. She didn't tell me what my HCG number was. She just said, you know, come in next week. So it was five weeks and one day. And there were the two sacks. So mm-hmm. it was very, very early. And so I think like having all of that time to prepare was really helpful for us. Yeah. Um, my husband and I are both planners. <laughs> and so like, sometimes I talk to other twin moms and they're like, I didn't find out until my 20 week anatomy scan that I was having friends. And, that would be rough. <laughs> um, just, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm happy that we found out so early. So our big thing was just our, our vehicle because our big kid is still in a convertible car seat. And yeah. so we were going to have two more car seats and I, drove a sedan and my husband drives like a hatchback sort of thing. So we were like, okay, what can we get that will fit three car seats? So we had to think about that. And we're, we're pretty good as far as like budgeting goes. And neither one of us has had a car payment in a long time. And so we kind of had to think about like, what are Mm. we going to do with this? And then just the added expense of another child. um, And then plus another child that we hadn't planned on. And then we also ended up moving. So we needed more space. And so we bought a house and we moved when the twins were nine months old. And so just there's been a lot in the past year as far Mm. as change, just like money and budget and all of the things that come with that. And it's been quite the whirlwind, but I drive a minivan now. I am a minivan mom. And I love it. I love I feel like it. I'm never going to drive anything else ever again. Oh my gosh. I love my minivan. That, I don't know if you were ever this way, but I was, when I found out I was going to become a mom, I was like, and I am never driving a minivan. Oh man. <laughs> I love it. I just, I never thought, I mean, I just thought, okay, I'm just going to drive this car until like the wheels fall off. Yeah. But then like, well, I need something else. I want a minivan. I want a minivan. <laughs> <laughs> I got it and I love it. <laughs> oh my gosh. There's a family at the Montessori school that my kids go to and the the parents drove a minivan and they had a sticker on the back that said, I used to be cool. And <laughs> I was like, if I ever have to drive a minivan, like I would need one of those stickers. Cause yeah, I think I have a, I think I have a hang up about minivans. I don't know. <laughs> I um, always tell people, I still, I still feel um, incredibly cool in my minivan. <laughs> I get this question a lot, even though I have boy girl twins, I get, and they look nothing alike, but people <laughs> still ask, are they identical? Are they <laughs> like, identical? I like want to bang my head against the wall. I'm like, <laughs> they are two different sexes. Mm-hmm. My son is 15 pounds bigger than my daughter. They look nothing alike, really. <laughs> wow. That's so and funny. I still get asked. So I imagine that you having two boys, you get asked that all the time. Are they fraternal or That's identical? That's the first question everyone asks. And my twins also look nothing alike. My twin A, Anthony, he is, um, he has darker skin. He has lots and lots of really dark wavy hair. He's about, he's about a pound bigger than Benjamin. Um, but Benjamin has very fair skin. He has blonde hair. Um, they have different color eyes. Like they just, they don't, I don't even think they look like brothers. Like they just don't look similar at all, but that's the first question everybody asks. Are they identical? (laughs) Really quick. I have to ask, did you name them Anthony and Benjamin because they were A and B? I just noticed that that links. No, they actually switched places. Anthony was my twin B and Benjamin was my twin A, but 
and they kept switching places. So they were in two separate sacks and they had um, not too much fluid, but a lot of fluid. And so they were able to move around a lot and they kept just sort of flipping back and forth. And um, if you don't know, for those who don't know, um, your twin A is the one who's closest to the cervix. Okay. And so, um, but my twin, my twin A, who was Benjamin, um, had a hole in his heart. And so they wanted to make sure like we knew for sure which twin he was when he came out because yeah. we were going to do an echo. And so we kept their designations the same while I was pregnant, even though they were switching places. And then yeah. when I had my C-section, twin B, Anthony, he came first. And so they had like the hospital has to label him twin A okay. because he exited first. So anyway, very confusing. Wanted to make sure paperwork was all straight. And so, yeah. Oh so gosh. no, I didn't name them A, Anthony and Benjamin A and B on purpose because technically <laughs> it was supposed to be the other way around. I didn't know that. Cause my, mine never moved. They kept their same spots yeah. the whole time. Um, it's um, really uncommon. And my doctors were very shocked that they kept switching places. Wow. Your boys are fraternal, but you get asked all the time if they're identical, although they, they don't look alike. It's surprising to me how many people don't know what identical actually means <laughs> Right, exactly. <laughs> um, that it's like, if you're identical, you are, you have the same yeah. Like you're you the are, same person. You're you the carbon same copies. DNA. You have the same DNA. <laughs> yeah. And fraternal twins are two different children. Like two, they have different right. DNA. They're just two kids who you happen to be pregnant with at the same time Yes. because yeah. two yeah. eggs got fertilized. Yep. And uh, it's like, yeah. they're just their own single pregnancy, but they just happen to share a womb. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, but fraternal twins can have their own sack or can they share a sack? Um, fraternal twins always have their own sack. Okay. Yes. It's identical that can have their own sack or they can share a sack. Right. Yes. So, yeah. so I, um, I read a lot. <laughs> so when I found out I was having twins, I did a stupid amount of research. <laughs> Our twins, my twins and your twins are, are die, die twins. They're yes. dichorionic, diamniotic twins, which means they have, they had two amniotic sacs and two placentas yes. and twins can be risky, but die-die twins are the least risky of right. the twin types just because there's not as much worry about them running out of their own amniotic fluid because it's their own. And then um, also they don't have to share nutrients from one placenta. Probably like a year ago, I think I read an article in the Lawrence, Kansas Times. There was a woman who was giving birth to, I believe, triplets who all shared one sack. Wow. Yes. And she was hospitalized from like very early on until she gave birth because there was a big risk of the twins, like cords getting wrapped around each other's necks. Yeah. And so they had to monitor their heart rates like all the time to make sure that there was no tangling going on. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, I can't imagine. I know. Like, I, I can't remember exactly. I'm sure you could find the article, but I think she was hospitalized from like four months on or something like that. Like wow. was, and she gave birth early, but yeah. So it can, oh it can goodness. get pretty crazy with multiples. So I want to talk a little bit about breastfeeding with your twins in particular. So I breast, I, I was really excited to breastfeed and both my kids actually latched pretty easily. Like we had a pretty easy journey with that, but I only breastfed, I want to say for like six weeks, um, because I found that I wasn't able to produce enough milk for both of them. 
you know, I would pump too. And like, I think if I remember right, the most that I would get at any time, like a session of pumping was like two ounces, two to four ounces. So it wasn't enough to sustain them. So I did, I never exclusively breastfed. They always had like those first six weeks, it was breast milk and formula. And then after that, I decided to go just 100% formula and breastfeeding is really hard, really hard, but it was really hard also for me to let go of that and to let my milk dry up and to, to say I'm done, even though I knew it was what was best for me and for us. Um, it was really hard to let that go. And that totally took me by surprise. I did not expect that like extremely, like I'm getting an emotion welling up right now that I don't even know how to describe, but just like, it's, you're so extremely connected to your kids through breastfeeding. And it's just like this feeling of being able to nourish them with your body that I feel like can't really be replicated anyway. And that's say that with a grain of salt, cause that's not to take anything away from mothers who, who formula feed, but it's just, it's a very unique experience. And so I felt very privileged to be able to do that for as long as we did. And it was difficult and it was hard to let it go. So I know you breastfed your twins for at least a year. I just recently stopped. Just stopped. Okay. Yeah. And let me just say tandem breastfeeding is an arm workout. Like that is no small feat. And I know that you did that. So tell, tell me about your breastfeeding journey with your twin boys. Um, So I will say that I think um, this is another case where having my singleton first really helped me. Mm. Um, I breastfed him for two years um, and I I exclusively breastfed him the first year. We never had any formula at all. And then of course, like when he started eating, like he started eating food and then we nursed probably three or four times a day from about a year to a year and a half. And then after that, we nursed like morning and night and that was it. And then I stopped probably when he was about 25 months old. And, um, I will say I, you're talking about just sort of your experience of like deciding to stop breastfeeding. And that was hard for me. I wanted to be done breastfeeding so badly. I wanted my body back. It had been a really long two years of nourishing someone else with my body. Um, but it was very, very sad. And mm-hmm. I had post weaning depression, which I did not know was a thing. I did not until know I talked to my either. OB about it. <laughs> um, and she, my OB was my OB forever. And she was really great. And literally was just like, Jessica, you breastfed for two years. Like imagine what your hormones are doing right now. Um, right. so yeah, so that was, I, I had a wonderful breastfeeding experience with my first, I knew when I was ready to be done, but it, I was still sad when I was done. Yeah. So then with my twins, I knew I wanted to breastfeed. Um, and again, I, I read a lot. I just take in a lot of information. So I joined a couple of Facebook groups, um, about breastfeeding multiples. Um, I, there's an in-person breastfeeding support group that I attended with my first, and I still follow their Facebook page. So I found some moms of multiples in there that I could reach out to. And then our pediatrician's office has a lactation consultant on staff. And I actually, we had a zoom meeting where I just said, Hey, like I'm going to have twins in a few months. And I just, I need help. I don't know what to do as far as breastfeeding is concerned. So I feel like I, I prepped a lot because I wanted to be successful. 
And so the advice I got from our PEDS lactation consultant was have them latch individually first, just to make sure they Mm -hmm. both have a good latch before you try to tandem. So that's what we did the first um, two and a half days. So I had them on a Thursday morning. So Thursday, Friday, and then Saturday morning, I breastfed them one at a time. And if you've had newborns before, you know, they eat a lot. So you have to feed them really frequently. So I did that. And then we were home night three and I was by myself. Here's another, here's a side note that we can come back to later if you want to or not, but my husband and I don't share a bedroom. And so I have the twins with me. They're like in a bassinet next to my bed and I'm in there by myself. Um, and they were both crying like, okay, I don't know what to do. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so I just, I picked up one and latched him on. And then I like sort of finagled my way to scoop up the other one and latched him on. And it worked like they both nursed like that. And from then on, that's all I did. <laughs> I just oh nursed gosh. them both at the same time because it was just easier. And I ended up there's like a twin breastfeeding pillow that I had where I could kind of keep them both there like in a football hold. And so I did that up until they were probably like 11 months old. So I just always breastfed them at the same time. Like if one is, if one latched on, I scooped up the other one. And wow. So yeah. And I, I was not able to breastfeed them exclusively. So Um, When we were in the hospital, I had one twin who had um, a low blood sugar reading. So he had a little bit of formula then. And then my other twin lost a bunch of weight, like a lost almost too much of his birth weight. And so Mm -hmm. to try to get him back on track, we gave him some formula. And then I started pumping uh, the day we went home from the hospital. So I would pump, like we would put them down to go to sleep around six o'clock in the evening. And then I would like pump while I was eating dinner or whatever, just to get my supply up. And so then we started, my husband would bottle feed them breast milk while I slept for a little bit. And then at around four months, the doctor was a little bit worried about their weight. And so we ended up giving them four ounces of formula before bed for about two months, just to see if they would gain weight. Um, Now my guys are small. My oldest kid was like this too. They're just, I just have small babies and they Mm -hmm. don't really kind of come into their, (laughs) their size until they get older. Like I'm seeing it now with the twins, like as they're eating food and other things, they're getting bigger, but I just have small babies. What did they weigh at birth? They were six pounds, nine ounces and seven pounds, three ounces, like big for twins. (laughs) But of course I was full term. So um, yeah, but they just gain very slowly and in breastfeeding, sort of, you kind of determine if your babies are getting enough by their like weight gain and their diaper output. And so you want your babies to gain like four to seven ounces a week. And my, my kids literally gained four ounces a week. And that was it. Like they just never gained more than that, um, which was fine. And they were healthy and meeting all their milestones and they're just little guys. But (laughs) I just, so we gave formula uh, before bed for a couple months. And then we all got hand, foot, and mouth disease when Fun. they were maybe <laughs> seven or eight months old. And it was miserable. I uh, mean, it was like maybe the worst time of my life. Oh uh, my but gosh. my supply completely dropped and I was not able to pump enough to feed them. So I, I, I was working full time as a librarian. And so I was pumping at work three or four times a day. And I just was not able to pump enough. So a couple of the moms that were also pumping at school 
just donated their extra Aww. breast milk to me. So I, so we did the the formula for a couple months. And then after I had my hand, foot and mouth situation, I nursed them and I pumped what I could. And then to make up for what I didn't pump, I just gave them the donor milk from my friends at school, which is amazing. And they are yeah. like, I mean, just like the best, best humans. Like it's, fantastic. But so, yeah, so a very different breastfeeding experience this time around. Um, they're 13 months old now and I stopped breastfeeding, I think 12 days ago and kind of the same thing. Like I feel incredibly sad, Mm -hmm. but also knew it was time. Like I just, um, I was, I started nursing them one at a time again, just because they're bigger and it's hard to hold both of them at the same time. Um, and I just, I I was ready. I was sort of like just only nursing once or twice a day anyway. And then I woke up one morning and literally wanted to vomit. Like the thought of like nursing a baby made me want to vomit. And I've just never had that sort of physiological reaction before. And like, that's when I knew I was like, okay, that's like like your body body is ready to be done doing that. Um, so it was time. So that was it. And so, yeah, I think it, I think it was 12 days ago. So almost two weeks. We haven't nursed and they have been, my twin B kind of got a little weird when I wore a low cut shirt the other day and was <laughs> kind of like pulling at it. But I, I think he just, you know, what I, like they just, he's, they're realizing something is different now. And like, yeah. wait a second, like we're doing things differently with mom we're not nervous. It's anyway, it's just a weird experience. I don't love it, but I also like, I knew I'm like, okay, I'm my body doesn't want to do this anymore. So yeah, clearly. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, so yes, I would love to go back to the bed situation. That is, I'm super interested in hearing what that's all about. So, uh, my the only people I- that I've ever known, like, I mean, I'm sure I've known people who've done that, but my great grandparents had their own bedrooms. Yeah. And I remember as a kid, like exploring the house that they lived in, like after they had passed and just looking at and just being like, so interested in it being like, huh? So they, they had their own bedrooms. That's so interesting. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Tell me more. <laughs> so, um, we have lived together for about 10 and a half years. And initially when I moved in, um, because I moved into his house, he owned a house at the time and he had roommates and I didn't want to, like, I wanted to move in to, with him. I wanted to live together, but I also was like, uh, I don't really want to live with you and like your bros. So um, <laughs> why not? Jessica, I can't imagine yeah. why not. <laughs> it was like, listen, I am like 25. I don't <laughs> anyway. So <laughs> I was about to renew a, my lease on like my, my place at the time. And we were in this place of like, we knew we were moving towards marriage and like wanting to start this life together. And he basically just said, listen, there's, he, his house had sort of like a, an odd setup. There was like a room that was all by itself in the basement and also sort of like a kitchen area down there. And he's like, just move in. You'll live down there. You won't have to deal with the roommates, whatever. So that's what we ended up doing. And then when the roommates moved out, we just didn't really make any changes. And we were like, well, it's kind of working. So, (laughs) and then we like sat down and talked about it and we both like having our own space that is just ours, um, where we can just be by ourselves. And so we ended up buying a house together a few years later and we talked about it. Like, Hey, are we going to share a space now? 
and we both just said like no like if it's not broke like then let's <laughs> don't fix <like>, it <laughs> doing it so yeah I, I like it because I am I am an early riser I go to bed early I wake up early yeah um, my husband's more of a night owl so it works that way and I also like I just sleep is really important to me as far as just like regular consistent sleep. I think about it when I apply it to my own children and how much we like think about how necessary their sleep is to their development. And I just apply it to myself as well, because I know how I function best and I function best when I sleep consistently. Um, and I sleep consistently by myself. Um, so that's just how things have worked out for us. I know people are so weirded out by it, but um, and the just... one question, I hope this is okay to say on your yeah. podcast, but the one question everybody wants to ask is like, do you have sex? Yeah. Well, we well obviously. Three, so yes. <laughs> but yeah. So um, I would imagine so it's just... more like ceremonious though. Like, yeah, I mean, cause it's not like, okay, we're both in the same bed, like roll over. Like it's more like, Hey, I'm coming into your room. That's exactly what it is. And then somebody gets up and leaves. And sometimes <laughs> we ask like your bed or my bed. <laughs> that is so funny. Oh, it's so um, interesting. Yeah, but it's- I also think it's good because like, especially with just having three kids now and we both work full time, like we have to be really purposeful about it. And just, there's no default time together like there would be if we just like we both know we're yeah. gonna end up in the same space at night right. so now we just have to be purposeful about spending time together which I think is really good for us like yeah. just the idea that we are carving out time for each other every day it's intentional because we know we're not going to bed together yeah which I feel like is like you guys probably get a lot more quality time than most couples because you know, my husband and I go to bed at different times too. I'm the, I go to bed early and read and he usually stays up and watches a show and then comes in later. So, you know, even though we're in the same space, like that time isn't quality time really, you know? So yeah, it's, and it's only interesting because it's not the norm. Like, like it makes total sense. It makes sense. It's just not the norm. I mean, I think I, I love my marriage. I know this is going to sound gushy and gross, but like, I I love my marriage. I love like what we've created together, like our life and our family. And I just, I, it works for us. And I feel like we probably, I think we get judged quite a bit for (laughs) it. Like, do you guys like each other? um, Right. Yeah. (laughs) But I honestly, like, really, I, I feel like we probably like each other more than we would if we were like not getting good sleep and we also sleep train at my house like my our kids go to bed early so we have time um just like eat dinner together and watch tv together and like other things that it just I think works for us yeah is it uh like when you guys travel and (laughs) we do we do share well (laughs) we usually try to get a room with two beds (laughs) (laughs) but sometimes we can't so we we will end up like sharing a bed when we when we go on vacation which is fine and we do fine but also (laughs) we always agree at the end of the vacation like it's good that we don't regularly share (laughs) and this is a good reminder of why we don't (laughs) so before we kind of jump into talking about I want to talk to you obviously about education and your job and you were a teacher for a long time and then now you're a librarian but there's one other thing that I want to touch on on motherhood and that's on race, raising biracial boys. Your husband is white and you're black and your, your boys have like a mix of different skin tones. So I, I know we were talking about this, like before we jumped on, but your boy's skin is quite a bit lighter than yours. And, and you have gotten 
questions about that. So like what, what questions come up and how do you, how do you handle that? (laughs) Yeah. So this is, um, it's something that's like really present on my mind a lot. And it's one of those things that I feel like I don't always have the right answers for. Yeah. And unlike breastfeeding and sleep training and pregnancy, I can't just like read a bunch of blogs or watch YouTube videos to like figure out how to navigate this. Mm. So this is like a different experience for me. So obviously not knowing what our children were going to look like before they got here. um, My husband and I talked a lot about just like having brown skin children and what that looks like and what that means for them. And then I think we were both really surprised when our, our first was born Um, I hate this term, but I can't really think of any other way to say it. He's very white presenting. Like if you don't know that he has a black mother, I think you would assume that he's just a white boy. Mm. Um, And so we were both really surprised by that. And I think has really just kind of changed our perspective on things. So I get a lot of, you know, like my kid doesn't, first of all, you should know he looks exactly like me. Like his face is my face. So when you see us together, like you realize, like, I think it's easy to tell that I'm his mother. Mm -hmm. Um, But his skin is, is so light. His hair is very light, you know, especially in the summertime, he gets very light brown blonde hair and it can be awkward. There are questions about like, am I the babysitter? Am I the nanny? Like, is this really my child? Like on forms and offices, people will mark his race as white. So it's just, it's a weird sort of like, I don't really know the things to say. I, I tend to be pretty brash and confrontational. And so like, if anyone has said anything sort of out of the way to me, I get really defensive and like very mama bearish, but also like, again, he's just like a really, really sweet, fun kid. And so people don't ever like say mean things to him, but we'll ask him questions like, is your mom's skin brown? Like the kids in his class Mm -hmm. Um, or like, we'll say things like, that's not your mom. Like when I go to pick him up from preschool or whatever, just like very strange, like And so him trying to figure that out, like, mom, you have brown skin, mom, you have black hair, I have white skin. Yeah, it's just, it's a weird experience. And then like, again, my twin A, I think he probably looks like the most biracial. I'm going to put that in quotation marks, um, just because his skin is like very tan Mm -hmm. um, and his hair is really dark. But my other twin, my twin B, um, is like the palest of the pale. I mean, he's... (laughs) very, very white. And he doesn't really look all that much like me. So I think as he gets older, I think it'll be a different experience for him than it is for like Anthony or Will. And I don't know, my husband and I talk about it a lot. We don't really know what this is going to look like. We don't know what's going to happen when they start school. I mean, I've been pretty open about it just on social media, just saying like, these are my kids. This is what they look like. This is what our experience is like. But yeah, this is just one of those like up in the air. I have to take these experiences as they come and Mm -hmm. hope that I handle them appropriately as their mom. Yeah. But yeah, just lots of questions and uncertainty about what their future looks like. You know, I hadn't thought about like from your kids' peers perspective, like saying things to your kids, like, oh, your mom has brown skin. Why don't you have brown skin? That kind of thing. But like kids are naturally curious and they look for- They're not malicious anyway. It's all like very, very much just curiosity. Like why does your mom look like that? And you look like that. 
what's um when someone says something like an adult says something like oh are you his babysitter or whatever what like I guess what emotions does that bring up for you and and what is your typical response so it's usually pretty subtle and someone will say like I'm thinking about like a few months ago I was out on a walk with the twins and a lady we stopped to talk to she says like I just have to ask you know are are they yours and I said, well, they they better be because I carried them for a long time and it was very painful and uncomfortable. And then you have sort of this just like, ha ha, uncomfortable reaction from her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's, that's usually what my response is, is it something kind of sarcastic, something that you can maybe like a nervous laugh about mm-hmm. instead of like what I really feel inside is like, I just, I want to be angry at you and I want to lash out at you and like say mean things that I know I shouldn't, but also I hope I make you feel uncomfortable enough to maybe not do it to somebody else. Yeah. And so, and just, I think navigating that line is hard for me because I, I think I am like a very true Leo and that I want to be kind of fiery, but I also like want to show my kids how to handle uncomfortable situations in an appropriate way. <laughs> so I, I think a lot about that. Like, I yeah. think if like, what are my children seeing me do? What are they hearing me say? And so yeah. I probably hold myself back a little bit more than I would if they weren't around well, I think too about, you know, so we're saying how kids, it comes from a place of curiosity, but then with adults, there's the intersection of curiosity and racism. And, right. and so that's a factor. I mean, it's like, is someone being just curious and like, I don't know, asking like in a, a genuinely curious way, or are there racial biases at play? Well, and I think that's the big question. And I, um, something that came up um, for me over the last year, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, mm, have, mm-hmm. like they had their big Oprah interview. And one of my friends said, well, like so-and-so in your life was asking about, you know, what your kids are going to look like. And I don't understand the difference. And I think there's a huge difference between being curious about the children's skin color versus like being concerned. And I think that I think it's really easy to tell when people are concerned, like how dark are your kids going to be versus like, oh, I wonder what they're going to look like. Mm -hmm. Like there's just, I think there's a big difference between curiosity and concern. From the past few years, like 2020 on, there's obviously been a big conversation going on sparked by police violence, police brutality, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. And so there's been, you know, this is a conversation that- we know, like I have learned in the past few years is a common one in families with black boys in particular about encountering police and like what that can mean and how they, how police often view black people, black bodies. And so I I wonder what that is like for you and your husband, you know, your concern in raising black boys because of the way that they may be perceived, but then also having like that additional layer of, like you said, your son is quote white presenting. So is that something that you worry less about or how do you feel about that? Yeah. So uh, we've had this conversation a lot. My husband and I've had this conversation a lot. And um, I will say that there is, I think there are equal parts relief and also guilt at our son's appearances. So 
I, I feel like because of their skin color, they are less of a target. Yeah. Which as a parent, you say, okay, this is, this is good. I want my child to not be a target. Right. But also you feel guilty about there's guilt in that relief. And so we, you know, my oldest is five and we have not had conversations with him about police and the brutality. We have not had those conversations with him. We kind of talk about things in a, like as a, the big picture of just like being nice and following rules and not everyone is going to um, treat you the way you want to be treated. Like we've had those conversations, but Mm -hmm. not in the specific police context. Yeah. I do envision us having those conversations as our boys get older because I think they're necessary. But yeah, I think that it's just, it's just a weird place to be as a black woman and not having my children have a similar skin tone to me, because I feel like in very specific situations, I am going to be perceived very differently than they are. Um, And I have, you know, I wear my hair naturally. I have very kinky, coily hair and I have brown skin and my kids don't. My kids have, you know, like fine hair. I mean, I'm just going to call it white boy hair um, (laughs) and, and light skin. And I just like the world perceives us differently. And so those, those are conversations that we will have that we haven't had yet that are just sort of in that box of uncomfortable things we have to talk about as parents with our kids. Mm. Yeah. And I, I wonder, obviously you can't speak for him, but from your husband's perspective, because he's not a black man and having to have those conversations, not having experienced some of the things that your sons may experience being biracial boys because he's a white man. You know, I, I just think that w- that's another it's just a very dynamic situation. It is. And I will yeah. say, I think there are people who will ask me questions about like being in an interracial relationship and what that looks like and like how you know that's the best thing for you. And one of the things I always point out is just, you know, my husband has never shied away from this. He's never, never wanted to not talk about these things with me. He's never tried to push things aside or say, this is not the reality. He's always Mm. been, he's always been really forthcoming with his feelings about it. And just, um, it was really important to me before we got married that we were on the same page. Yeah. Um, as far as like raising biracial children and what that looks like. And yeah. Um, like we've been together for, I don't know, like 15 years or something. So, you know, we've had a lot of time to go over these things, but yeah, I think just his part in it is, you know, I don't understand, like, I'm never going to understand what that's like, but he can see it from his perspective and say, I know that like, this is a problem and this is something we need to address. And this is what I want for our kids. Um, and that's, that is really important for me. I don't like, I don't know how it would work otherwise if he wasn't open to having those conversations or took the approach that a lot of people take, which is like, oh, I don't see color, you know, right. like not acknowledging that your experiences are different. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you for great. <laughs> delving into that with me. Um, yeah. I know that I don't do a perfect job of like touching on those subjects, but it is something that's important for, you know, just in general, I think as a 
white woman, it's important for me to be vulnerable in like these types of conversations with people of color. And because, you know, I think for so long, it just wasn't talked about at all. It was too uncomfortable. Like, don't go there. And, and like the past few years broke that open in a lot of ways. Yes. Um, But I also think now that, you know, I feel like 2020, 2021 were kind of the height of everything. Like there's a lot going on, a lot of emotions running really high, a lot of really horrible things going on. And now we're kind of on the downside of that, you know, Biden was elected and I think everyone collectively kind of exhaled, you know, like, okay, we're past that. But I think at the same time, it kind of has given people permission to take a step back and not talk about these things as much and feel like, okay, that's over now. And it's right. like, it's, it's not over. Um, yeah. We just don't have Donald Trump in our face every day. So it makes it a little <laughs> bit different. Um, yeah. But I just, I just think it's important to talk about things that are still very important, you know, regardless of what's going on politically and, and whatnot, and, and make it known that like these things are still affecting black families, whether or not white families and white people have chosen to engage with it anymore. Yeah. I mean, I had a conversation with a friend of mine where I just said, you know, there's, there's no point in my life where I can just take off my blackness no. and just like, you know, kind of pretend like things aren't happening. Yes. Um, and that's sort of, it's kind of opening for her. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's important to talk about it and say like, this, this is just sort of my everyday reality. So yeah. Well, and like you said, you can't take off your blackness, like, but white people have the ability to pick up these issues and set them down when they're done with them because we, yeah, we don't, we don't have black skin, so we don't yeah. deal with it every day. It's not our reality. So anyway, just want to say thank you for doing that with me. <laughs> um, we talk about it. <laughs> yes. Um, so I want to talk about, I am super curious. I don't want to focus too much on like the past few years, but you were a classroom teacher through the pandemic, through all of that. And then, and and prior to that, and then made the transition. Was it last year when you became a librarian? Yes. Yeah. Um, so how, you know, now that you've got like a year under your belt as a librarian, how has it been different (laughs) in, you know, the ways that stand out most to you? being in the classroom versus now being a librarian? I taught English, high school English for 12 years, and I absolutely loved it. It's just, I, it's what I wanted to do. Like I went to school for it. And then I also always knew that I wanted to be a school librarian. So I started Mm -hmm. teaching English. I loved it. I just kind of stuck with it because I was good at it and I really enjoyed it. Um, And I also really love my school. Um, I love my principal and, um, I don't know if, if you're not a teacher, it's kind of hard to understand, but I just, I have a lot of autonomy in my job. Um, mm-hmm. and a lot of teachers don't always have that. And so I was really, I really enjoyed that. Um, and the librarian at my school had been there for a long time and I just, I didn't want to leave. So I continued to teach English. And then of course the pandemic happened and that was incredibly difficult. It's hard to put into words, just kind of how life changing it was. And you know, I feel like my school, my school district did a lot better than most as far as supporting us as teachers. Um, and it was still incredibly hard. Yeah. And then we sort of like, 
I mean, I know we're COVID is still a thing, but we sort of came out on the other side of that. Um, and I had a fantastic school year and felt like I was really connecting with my students and I felt like a better teacher. I feel like just going through like 2020 and 2021, I feel like I developed a lot of skills as a teacher that I didn't have before. Um, it really kind of changed the way I was teaching. And I, I just, I felt good about what I was doing in the classroom, but uh, the librarian at my school decided to retire. And I thought like this, this might be my only opportunity. I didn't feel like I was ready to leave the classroom, especially coming off of just a really great school year. But I knew that this is what I wanted to do. I knew that like, this was sort of my ultimate goal in education Mm -hmm. and I had my certification. And so I talked to my principal about it and um, he was really excited for me to make the transition. And so this past school year was my first year as a librarian at my school and um, it was fantastic. I mean, it just, like I said, I didn't feel like I was really ready to leave the classroom and I felt really sad about it. And there are lots of things I, I really miss about teaching in the classroom, but this is where my heart belongs. Like mm-hmm. this, it feels like I was, I was made to be a school librarian. And it's just been, it's been a really incredible experience because I feel like I am in the hub of the school. Um, I feel like I am just exposed to so many students that I was never exposed to before and, and wouldn't be like in my own classroom. Also, my school is really big. We have about 2000 students. And so I get to see so many different types of students. Mm-hmm. Whereas before, like I taught ninth and fifth grade English, which is a graduation requirement. So I had just a full range of students every single year, which was great but like in a very contained environment and I was teaching very specific things, but now I get to see, um, you know, our students who struggle with reading and maybe just need help even like figuring out how to navigate the library um, and figure out what books like will fit for them. Um, And then I also get to see just sort of like the incredibly smart AP students, like the Ivy League bound kids who like need to figure out their peer reviewed academic Mm -hmm. sources and like literally every kid in between. And it's really cool just to like see everyone on that spectrum. And so I feel like I, I'm really good at just like adapting to different people. And I feel like I get to like exercise those skills now and every day is so different. Like, I just never know who's coming into the, into the library. And I'm like always on my toes. And it's just, it's been a really, really fantastic experience. And, you know, one of my biggest passions is literacy um, and literacy into adulthood, which um, I mean, I'm sure like if you've seen the surveys of like the adults who read for fun, it's like 3% of adults or something. Um, but also, oh my gosh, like, not I don't think it's actually that low. that low. I think I'm exaggerating, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it's very, very low. I mean, it's like a really wow. small percentage of adults who, who read for fun. And then also just the number of, of adults who like don't comprehend well. So like if they're looking at, I don't know, I'm just going to throw out some examples, like people who are going through a divorce and have to figure out like what this plan means or like people who 
um, need to figure out their HVAC warranty and things like that, that like the very mundane everyday things that like adults struggle with comprehension wise, I feel like we lose them in, in those teenage years. And so um, I'm really passionate about just what reading means, like the comprehension of it and like getting people to continue to like exercise that part of their brain between the ages of the 14 and 18. Hmm. And so it's just been, it's been a fantastic experience for me. It feels like just, this is the job I want to do for the rest of forever. That's awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's been really cool. And I'm also, I'm getting my master's in library information science right now. And so that's been cool because I feel like the things I'm learning, I get to apply immediately, which is like not always a thing you get to do when you're in school. Right. So, so yeah, it's, it's been really great. I love that for you. I know you are like a mega reader. I am of the 3% or whatever number <laughs> it actually is of adults who read for fun. Um, so, you know, a big part of me like really envies your job. I think that sounds amazing. Yeah. So the bans on books. And I, I think I just saw something pop up this morning about another thing going on in Florida at the hands of Ron DeSantis. It had something to do with banning. It's um, basically just like a I don't know, like a law that says like when they're teaching African-American history, they have to like paint slavery in a positive light, which, and I'm oh in Missouri. Wow. And so Missouri is, um, I think wants to be the next Florida. Jesus. So like our governor has made things very difficult for librarians, um, the last couple of years, but, um, okay. So one thing wow. I will say, I'll just start off on, on a positive note. Um, my school district has a, a collection development policy that we as librarians follow. There are 18 libraries in my district and we all follow this policy um, that goes with like the American Library Association standards and the American Association of School Librarian standards. And that's, that's a big deal. I feel like there are a lot of schools and districts who don't have that policy in place. And mm -hmm. so like we as librarians are professionals and we do our job well and we know what materials we should select for our library. Yeah. I think it helps to have that that plan in place. So, so like, does that I'm, help protect you guys in the library against like politicians' whims? Yes. So I think like I'm constantly checking myself and saying, okay, this is a book that I want to purchase for the library, or this is a database that I want my students to have access to. Yeah. Maybe there's something controversial here, but if I go back to my policy, I'm following this policy. Um, so I know that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. So that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, we also have a process in place if there is a book that is challenged. So like if a parent goes to um, a principal or a school board member, whoever, and says, this is a book that I that shouldn't be in the library at my student's school. Yeah. Like there's a plan in place. There's a, a policy that's followed. There's um, a committee that reviews all of these things. Wow. And so I think what has happened in a lot of schools is they will have parents or community members who will come and say, I don't want this book on the shelf anymore. And so then someone makes the decision to remove it. The principal, the librarian, a teacher, whatever. And so then that's how you end up with books that are just not on the shelves anymore. And mm -hmm. that's sort of the end of it um, until somebody comes back and challenges it and says, no, I do want this book here. And so then there's like a lot of back and forth. There are lots of angry board meetings. Um, there, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of people who think they have more power than they actually do. Um, and it's sort of chaotic. So I will say, I feel like I'm in a really great place in my district because we haven't had that issue 
Um, I think we have had a couple of parents kind of here and there concerned about a book or like a video or some other material. Um, but again, because we have this policy in place, it's been very low key. We haven't made the news. Like it's just been sort of like cut and dry. So that's the first wow. thing. Um, but um, we have a state legislator that basically said um, you can't have any sexually explicit images, which doesn't seem like a big deal because we don't have those anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but because this passed, they're basically trying to streamline it into you can't have any sex or pornography or whatever, which by the way, your school library doesn't have pornography in it, just <laughs> so everybody knows. So that's that's been hard just because there have been lots of teachers who have been fearful. Like yeah. I need to get rid of things. I can't have this in my classroom. Graphic novels are really popular with our students right now. And so just having to like flip through and make sure there's no nudity, that's been kind of tough. But again, like we're talking about 16 year olds and yeah, like they've seen a nipple and that's okay. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but there are a lot of people who think, no, that's not okay. They shouldn't be able to see a woman's breast in a, in a book. That's like not appropriate, but also like your child has a smartphone that has access to the internet and that's okay. I make very purposeful choices when I am developing my collection, um, as far as just wanting students to be represented. Yeah. I am going to forget this person's name, Dr. Ruby. I can't think of her last name, <laughs> um, but has a very famous article that students should see mirrors and windows and sliding glass doors in their books. And that is sort of like my big, my big thing is mm -hmm. I, of course, I want my students to see themselves. I also want them to see people who are adjacent to them and what their lives are like. Um, and also just a broader view of the world. And so is the um, adjacent identities that the sliding glass door, I hadn't heard that part before. Um, like the window, like you're looking out and you're seeing your peers and you're seeing what your peers' lives are like. And then when you go through the sliding glass door, you're immersed in other things that are outside of your very immediate bubble. Okay. I spent a lot of time auditing what was already in the collection. So I have about 7,500 books. And so I wanted to see what was there. And then, um, cause our previous librarian had been there for about 20 years. And so I just wanted to like, see what Take was inventory. good. Yeah. Yeah. And so then I spent a lot of time this year, um, adding a lot of disability representation, a lot of LGBTQI plus representation, a lot of different socioeconomic characters. Mm -hmm. And just, I wanted to make sure that like our underrepresented populations Sees themselves. could see themselves. Yeah. And I think that a lot of my colleagues in my state want the freedom to do that, but don't have that. Mm. And so I, I'm really thankful that I'm able to kind of just, again, I have a lot of autonomy in my job. And so amazing. it's been fun, but also like, just like my husband keeps telling me, like, don't do anything that's going to get you in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I have not been on the receiving end of a ban and I'm just going to knock on this wood right here in front of me because yeah. hopefully it won't happen. Because um, yeah. I, I think it's important. Our, our kids should have access to these materials and yeah. we should have a wide range. And again, I have about 2,000 students in my school. So there are a lot of different things represented among those bodies. And yeah. I want to make sure that they're also in our library. Have you had like an experience with a student where you know, somebody picks up a book or, or finds a story or something where they're, where they see themselves. Um, just like an example of 
the power of rep- representation and how that's like impacted a student? Then? Yeah. So there's a book called um, Juliet Takes a Breath by Gabby Rivera. And Juliet is gay. Um, she's known that she's gay for quite some time, but decides after her first year of college, she's going to come out to her family. She is Dominican. I think she's Dominican, Catholic family. And, you know, the the responses from her family members are are mixed. There's sort of some indifference. There's some anger. There's some acceptance. You know, she's 19 years old. And so a lot of times I will um, have this book on display because it's actually, it's a really interesting cover. I like the cover of it a lot. Students first are attracted to the cover. And then of course they'll read the summary and so many of them are experiencing something like this. Like there's Mm. something I'm keeping from my family that I need to tell them. And I don't know that it's going to go over well. And, oh, here's a story that doesn't have this like super frilly, happy ending um, because her family isn't super accepting of her. And here's what happens when she realizes they're not super accepting of her. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I don't want to like out any of my students, but I I did have one girl in particular who just like really resonated with the story. I was really, really happy that I could hand that book to her and say like this this is something you probably want to read. So she, Mm. she enjoyed it. And then um, another book I really like to give to students is the poet X by Elizabeth Acevedo. Um, It's great because it's a novel in verse. And so a lot of our students who aren't big readers like to read books like that because the Mm. pages go really quickly. And she is, um, she's a poet basically is in this, in this weird place of like, she's 16 years old. She is, her mother's very religious. She is not, she thinks she's maybe an atheist and doesn't really know how to talk to her mother about that. Um, There's so many expectations of her to not be like sexual and to downplay her, her body and just sort of that like formulaic coming of age story, but told in such a unique way. Mm. Um, and are a lot of, a lot of my students really connect to that because that's just where they are in their life. They're becoming adults and realizing that they're not like these miniatures of their parents, what it means to just become their own person, even though maybe they're scared to do that. Mm. So those, those are the two books that I really like to recommend as far as just like my teenagers growing up and yeah. just seeing themselves. The word that comes to mind for me with the way that you're describing both of those books is like they're a guide, like a guide for these students. Yeah, that's a fantastic word. I love that. Which I think a lot of good literature ends up being guides for us, like in different parts of our life, depending on, you know, what we're going through. Um, I hate to be sexist, but it typically boys and girls don't read a lot of the same books. Like if we're just talking about this binary and I'm making huge generalizations here. (laughs) Um, But one of the books I really like to recommend to my boys is Supermarket uh, by Bobby Hall. He's also um, known as Logic the Rapper. Um, but I, there's a huge plot twist in the story that I won't give away. But um, basically, our, our character's in this like mental health crisis, but doesn't realize it. Um, and so it's sort of this, it follows him like minute by minute by minute, day by day. Um, through his like he's like working this part-time job after high school and he has this girlfriend and um, because he works at the supermarket he works with these other adults and he they're like giving him advice on life and um, it's it's a really really interesting narrative about 
mental health and what that looks like in teenage boys and just the everyday minutia of life of just like being in high school and also working this part-time job and going home to their apartment. And um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Is it like in your, your goals to write a book? (laughs) <laughs> yes. Okay. I figured. Um, yeah, I do. I write, I have like one finished book that I've kind of shopped around a little bit. Um, but I took a break huge. just when I like started having more babies. <laughs> <laughs> Um, can't imagine why. So, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's amazing. But I, wow. I am um, partial to romance. Um, and I feel like romance gets a really bad rap, but I uh, will defend it. It's like the hill I will die on. <laughs> I think I think romance is really important, um, especially for teenagers, because I feel like so much of romance now, like in the last 15, 20 years, shows like really healthy consensual relationships. Mm-hmm. Um and then if they're not, it gets very, like the author's commentary on that is very clear. Like it's yeah. clear that this is really toxic. Um, this was a bad relationship or whatever. And I just feel like there's a lot to learn as far as um, like interactions with people and being able to read another person and um, take their feelings into account. Mm. And so I think romance is really important and I write romance. So first question is what is your favorite thing about yourself? um I have been thinking about this question since I saw it the other day and I don't know (laughs) (laughs) I know I think I like how loyal I am like I will like if you're in if you're in my circle if you're my people I am going to love on you forever and ever and I will defend you with my last breath and like you can just count on me to be that person in your corner. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like that I am like so devoted to the people in my corner. I like that about me. Cause I yeah. feel like I, like my people know that they can depend on me. And I, mm-hmm. I like that. Such a warm, fuzzy feeling. Like when you, when you know people, when you have people in your corner, who you just know are, are there, that's just a very comforting thing. And I yeah. feel like it gives you the freedom to be full of yourself too. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. What's something that you appreciate in other people? I appreciate honesty. I think because like, I'm going to love you in all of your seasons of life. Mm -hmm. Right. And so like, if something happens, if there's a misstep, if, um, if I make a misstep, if there's, I like when people are upfront with me and honest with me and can have just like really raw and real conversations with me. So I like when are open enough with me to do that. What's, um, I included three book questions for you because I know that you'll be able to answer all three. Um, what's your favorite recent book that you've read? Um, so I, I have two. Okay. <laughs> um, so I actually just finished, uh, Love Theoretically by Allie Hazelwood, which is like a really sciencey, nerdy romance. And I really have liked everything I've read by her. Mm. Um, but I, I like just sort of like the intellectual quirky nature of her writing. And that one was really good. I mean, it was like one of those, like I read it in like less than 48 hours kind of books. Yeah. And then I also just listened to Babel by R.F. Kuang, Rebecca Kuang, okay. um, which I thought was pronounced Babel until I listened to the audio and it's actually pronounced Babel. <laughs> um, I feel like that happens a- to people who are big readers. Yes. 
Yeah. yeah because you don't like hear I've been words. mispronouncing words my entire life. Mm-hmm. And then, <laughs> um, so, a um, funny one real quick, sorry, is yeah. I read Harry Potter as a kid. And so when I was reading those books, I thought Hermione was pronounced hormone. <laughs> and I remember I <laughs> yes. said that I said it out loud to my mom. She goes, ew, that's a gross name. <laughs> Sorry. I thought it was Hermione <laughs> until like the movies came out and I was yeah, like, and then you're oh. like oh Hermione okay <laughs> that wrong forever yeah <laughs> yeah um so Babel is uh historical fiction well like kind of speculative fiction there's like a l- little bit of low fantasy in it uh but it's about um like it's a really interesting commentary on like the opium issues in China and kind of what mm-hmm. the western leaders did with opium in China and uh, the children they abused. And uh, it's it's really interesting. It's like a YA adult crossover. Mm-hmm. Um, I read it because I was trying to decide if I wanted to buy it for the library. And it was just really, really interesting. Like if you know anything about languages or translation, yeah. it, was, it was really dense. It took me a long time to get through it, but it was, I'm still thinking about it like a month yeah. later. It's really good. That's how you know it's good. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite book of all time? Okay. So you never ask an English teacher or librarian this question, (laughs) but I am going to answer it. Um, it's the Poisonwood Bible by Barbara Kingsolver. And, um, there, so if if you don't know, it's, it's about, um, so there's a pastor and he has a wife and four daughters and they go on this mission, mission trip to the Congo and, it's told from the perspective of the wife and the daughters and it's in 1960s. Um, and it just really put into words, a lot of the things I was thinking about religion at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I grew up going to a Baptist church and now I'm an atheist. So that's where I am in my life. And it just like, I, like it talks so much about like this culture they had as these Southern Baptists. I think they're from Georgia, if I remember correctly. And just like what it meant to like try to thrust the this religion onto the Congolese people. Um, and then kind of where they ended up in life after that. And I just thought it was so, so interesting. Pretty, pretty much all of my friends are Christians. And so I talk about religion a lot and just sort of the role it has played in my life. And that book just put into words so many things I couldn't put into words. Interesting. Um, yeah. So I, I've read it a couple of times. I'm probably due for another reading. It's been several years since I've read it, but it's kind of that, just that one book I always go back to when Sticky. I think about just like life as a whole and like my outlook on life, I guess. I just finished reading uh, Animal Vegetable Miracle by Barbara Kingsolver. Um, oh, I haven't read that one. I just read her new one. I just finished it. Totally. From what I understand, it's a total departure from her normal body of work. Is it her nonfiction book? Yes. Okay. Okay. So her recent fiction book is like a play on that book. Oh, interesting. But I have read that one. Yeah. Okay. Just beware because it made me start going to the farmer's market again, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it made me buy a whole chicken and cook that instead of buying chicken breasts. Mm-hmm. Maybe try cheese making. Oh. Um, so you'll probably want to do all the things if you read that book, like, oh, I can do this. So yeah, just heads up on that. Um, and then what's a favorite children's book of yours? Um, so for me, it's just always, it's about like feeling and nostalgia. And so like I have two, um, where the red fern grows mm-hmm. is my first one. Um, and I, I actually reread that as an adult, um, 
and I mean, the, the teachings are the same, just like about growing up in loyalty and love and loss and yeah. So that one, and then, uh, Charlotte's web. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it still gets me. Mm, I just love that. Do you like the movie too? Like, uh, the movie's okay. I mean, it's <laughs> really close to the book, which is like what I always look for, I guess. But yeah, just, again, like that feeling of like, love and loss and loyalty and um gets to the heart of things yeah really really good um and then just like an under underrated one that I feel like more people should read um the spiderwick chronicles really love that one I've never heard really good like children's fantasy well Jessica I know we're over time so I want to wrap up but I just want to say thank you um for taking the time to talk with me and dealing with all of our tech issues that I'm having <laughs> here on my end um and then delving into some you know difficult conversations that uh I certainly do not know how to like facilitate super well so I just thank you for being open and willing to do that with me I appreciate it well thank you for having me I really enjoyed this I'm glad we got to d- delve into some uncomfortable things I always enjoy talking about those and- yeah <laughs> Yeah. Thanks for letting me talk about my kids and oh yeah. (laughs) They're my favorite. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Makers, Dreamers, Doers podcast with me, Morgan Barrett. Please remember to follow, review, and share this podcast with anyone who you think would enjoy it. Your support helps more people find the podcast. You can also find me on Instagram at Morgan Barrett underscore underscore and check out my website for more information at morganbarrett.co.